Today's episode is presented by Public. Public Public.com has just launched its new high-yield cash account, offering an industry-leading 5.1% APY. No fees, no subscription, and no minimums or maximums. That means you can grow your cash with 5.1% interest with no strings attached. It's as simple as that. Again, that is 5.1% interest with no fees, 5.1% interest with no subscription, 5.1% interest with no minimums or maximums, and 5.1% interest with up to $5 million of FDIC insurance, just 5.1% interest straight up, no strings attached. Sign up today at public.com backslash chit chat money. This is a paid endorsement for public.com, 5.1% APY as of December 20th, 2023, and is subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast description. High-yield cash accounts are available for U.S. members only. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan, Brett, or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Two people inside Bridgewater, one in investment research, the other a lowly information technology grunt, had higher believability scores than Dalio himself. People were beginning to whisper about it. McDowell explained to Dalio that this was a sign the system was working, that Bridgewater was fishing out the pockets of talents in its ranks exactly as exactly as Dalio had asked him to do. Dalio's voice made no secret of his irritation. Why doesn't believability cascade from me? McDowell thought back to Dalio's index card drawing. He realized that Dalio hadn't been sketching out the mere concept of believability on top. He had drawn himself quite literally at the head, bestowing believability to all beneath him. The fix was obvious. McDowell assigned an underling to go into the software and program a new rule. Dalio himself would be the new baseline for believability in virtually all important categories. As the original topmost believable person at Bridgewater, Dalio's rating was now numerically bulletproof to negative feedback. Regardless of how everyone else at the firm rated him, the system would work to keep him on top. That is an excerpt from the book, The Fund, Ray Dalio, Bridgewater Associates, and the Unraveling of a Wall Street Legend by Rob Copeland. Today, we're going to be talking about Bridgewater Associates. I believe still the largest hedge fund in the world. And we're going to be going through how the fund got started, the story, the background to Ray Dalio, what it looks like today, and some some tidbits about the unique culture at the firm. Am I missing anything for the introduction here, Brett? Yeah. Let me say... This is Chit Chat Money. That was a wonderful cold open by Ryan. If you are confused about what the heck they are doing with believability at a hedge fund, don't worry. We're going to get right into it. But yes, that was a quote there, a somber quote from the fascinating book, The Fund, uh, Ray Dalio, Bridgewater Associates, and the Unraveling of a Wall Street Legend. As I said, this is Chit Chat Money, um, and we're going to try to answer the question, is the world's largest hedge fund a scam? Spoiler alert, in some ways, no. In some ways, possibly, but it's much different than how they portray 
uh, and we ourselves got fooled about it uh, when we were younger, learning about investing. But we're going to get into it. But before that, housekeeping items. We're talking about this all this month. In February, we are changing our name to Chit Chat Stocks instead of Chit Chat Money. Nothing else is going to change for the podcast, but we're going to be changing to Chit Chat Stocks. If you liked this episode, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We'd greatly appreciate it. I've seen a few more rolling in and an accelerated cadence there uh, for people doing that. So thank you very much for the people that are loyal listeners. If you like the show, you will also like our newsletter, which you can subscribe to on Substack. The link is in the show notes for uh, free. You can just sign up there. And if you want to read this book, we have the Amazon link in the show notes. But if you look up Ray Dalio book, Bridgewater book, et cetera, et cetera, it'll pop up on the Google machine. So let's get into it. This is a different format than we've typically done. As we've said recently, we're not doing strictly forcing ourselves to research a stock every week now. We are doing one episode that is either an interview, maybe some stock research, maybe something we've read. And we both got this book uh, around the holiday season, or I think I got it in December. We read it, and it's not a, you know, it's a fairly easy read, but we thought, hey, this is a fascinating book. Let's talk about it on the podcast. Let's maybe give a little book review plus insights we took away from this, and I think our listeners will enjoy it as well. Ryan, before, I'm going to get but, into part one, but what else you got for us? I was going to say, before we start, what did you, before you read the book, what were your thoughts on Bridgewater? Did you have any, I, I think we kind of went through a similar path, but what was your overall, what did you think of Bridgewater? What did you think of Dalio himself? So in 2023, before I read this book, I thought that Bridgewater was an underperforming hedge fund that is rarely good at accumulating assets because I'd seen their performance numbers leaked to the media. And then I also saw their AUM numbers and I thought they ran some fairly complicated strategies that have not worked out well in the era of basically large cap growth is good and everything else is underperforming. So yeah, that, that was it. And I thought that Dalio liked to go talk to the media. He liked to put stuff out, on, stuff out on Twitter. He liked to write stuff on LinkedIn. He liked to post those YouTube videos that we'll get to that are, went quite viral. And I just thought that the guy was a little bit of a perma bear. Uh, but honestly, this book opened up to even, he's more bearish and doomerish than I even thought. But what were your initial, or excuse me, before you read the book, what were your thoughts on Bridgewater? Uh, well, I was one of the people that bought the principles. Uh, I think I got it as a gift. It's and that's we're going to be talking about that a lot today. I bought it, and you kind of get a couple chapters in, and there's a lot of words, but not that much substance. And it kind of took me a while to realize, and I think I probably gave up on the book about you know a couple of chapters through, but. Just because it's someone who's incredibly wealthy, who has accumulated tons of assets, doesn't mean that everything is accurate, that it's super, that it's, that it's a way that companies should behave. So I think over time, I kind of became a little less high on Dalio himself. I didn't know that much about Bridgewater. They're relatively secretive about their investments. Uh, and I think that's part of the allure. So uh, 
limited knowledge on on Bridgewater, but learned a ton through this book. So let's kick things off here with the first question. I want you to kind of take us through this part. What is Bridgewater Associates for starters? Who is Ray Dalio? And maybe give a story of how the company was started. What does he tell the world about the company? Yeah, I'd be delighted to. So Bridgewater Associates is currently estimated to be one of, if not the largest hedge fund in the world with close to $100 billion in assets under management. If you're new to investing, assets under management always gets abbreviated to AUM. So we'll probably be using that as a little moniker going forward. It is one of the most powerful financial institutions in the world and has been for decades, I would say, ever since the mid-1990s. They became what some might describe one of the titans on Wall Street, and they've been there ever since. It has relationships with some of the most powerful business, economic, and government actors around the world. And yet, how it actually works has been a mystery for years, which is why this book, which I believe had hundreds of different sources throughout all sorts of places around the world, from inside the company, from outside the company, from all the people that have cycled through and signed all these non-disclosure agreements, we got some great insights into how it works. So let's go right into it. We need to talk first about Ray Dalio because as you will see after listening to this episode or reading the book, he is Bridgewater and Dalio and Bridgewater is Dalio. You know, we're going to be discussing the principles. Uh, as Ryan mentioned, he read them and there are over 300 of them. We'll get to what they exactly are because it's the fulcrum of this maybe entire operation. It's always confusing to me exactly what these are, what purpose they serve. The man who, has a fascination with them. Who are they for? Who are they for? It, it, it honestly might be how this business is unraveling. So I think part of the, one of the themes of the book is that the principles are important, but is it important in bringing on the stagnation and perhaps it's not downfall because they still have so much AUM. But they're, they're way below AOM from when their peak was, and it's perhaps how they're unraveling, um, as the book maybe portrays here. So let's get to Dalio, though. Quick little backstory for him. He was born just after the end of World War II in Queens, New York. Uh, he was an only child, grew up on Long Island. As a child, he became a caddy at the Lynx Golf Club, and he started working for the financial elite at the time, which I'm assuming is around the 1960s or so during that bull market. And then most of my sourcing here is from the book, from passages here. And then as a caddy... He met a rich couple from the finance world. He became very friendly with them. So it was a couple, rather the guy at the time, I guess women were allowed to work in these jobs, but the, the guy worked on the, I think on the New York Stock Exchange. And they basically asked Dalio to help spend time with their son, who uh, the son was slightly younger than Dalio. I think it was more of like a brotherly figure. Maybe they were both only child, something like that. And then one of his caddies who actually, I think, I don't know how they found this person for the book but said, and here's the quote, he, Dalio, understood what relationships were about way before anyone else did, and he used it to his advantage. I think that's important. Do you have, is that a theme you found throughout the book that he is extremely good at crafting relationships that can give him access to stuff and give him access to money? Yeah. I mean, in general, we're going to talk about this, but he is an exceptional salesman and not only in selling what ultimately became Bridgewater and selling the the in investment in Bridgewater, but selling himself, talking, speaking at a high level that makes it sound like he has a really good purview on whatever he's talking about. Um, and it doesn't surprise me that he did 
primarily through his newsletter, I think in the early days, end up captivating a lot of people and forming relationships that way. And, you know, it, it, if you watch videos, interviews of him, he always seems very friendly and he's, he really seems like he knows what he's talking about. And he is smart. Like, let's not kid ourselves here. He's, he's smart and can hold a good conversation, which I think probably played pretty darn well on the golf course as a caddy and, and elsewhere when he was coming up. Yeah, plucky, as they might say. But a little bit more on the bio, just one more paragraph here. His mom died when he was 19 uh, from a heart attack. And then at the time, he was a bad student that kind of ditched school, went to surf, and then did his little job to make some money. And then he went to a uh, small, easy-to-get-into school called CW Post. I believe that was just a local one on Long Island. But there he ended up getting straight A's and worked on the New York Stock Exchange uh, for a summer due to his connections from the golf course. And then this, along with the uh, relationships he had formed, helped him get into Harvard Business School. That was another notch on his reputation. HBS, Harvard Business School, extremely helpful, I, I would say, when trying to attract you know, people to give you money. And now, just ahead, in terms of relationship building, that probably was one of the most useful things in his life is having that Harvard Business School background because it makes it very easy to relate to a lot of people on Wall Street, which he ultimately did. Yep. Okay. Now, let's get into actually what Bridgewater Associates is. After graduating from Harvard Business School, he starts up Bridgewater, and it's hard to actually understand what they were doing in the beginning because it was really just him and he had his connections to the wealthy families in New York. He had proved that he was a little bit of, you know, he had some insights on Wall Street. He made a couple of few good trades and stuff like that. He was interested in commodities when everyone was interested in, I believe it was value investing at the time. I can't honestly remember, but he was, you know, kind of zigging when other people were zagging. He had some unique thoughts and he had these people that were focused on what they described as wealth preservation, you know, not losing money. Um, in the late 1970s into the 1980s. These are the wealthy families they member they mention. This could have been his old wife, or maybe it was his current wife that was yeah, uh, should... an ancestor of the... Uh, or Vanderbilt's. Not ancestor, yeah, descendant of the Vanderbilts. And it was more about wealth preservation, not losing money. And I will say at the time, you get earned 10% of the treasury, so we'll get into that. But that's a little bit of a tease for later. I don't know exactly what these people are thinking. You could just... <laughs> he just buy government bonds, but whatever. But Ryan, you have some dad there. Yeah. It so it's important to also mention that he tried to start this early. I wasn't in exchange, but it was like a a commodities importer exporter, um, import export business, and it didn't really get off the ground. But after marrying into one of the descendants of the, I believe it's Vanderbilt family, it basically gave him the capital that he needed. And I, I remember them saying that he was no longer like desperate to get money. And it kind of gave him that launch pad to really build Bridgewater into what it became. Yep, I agree. And there's, I think, three other things that helped him earn a reputation on Wall Street and get just more exposure in general. So first, famously, this is probably the most famous, he implemented a soybean and corn futures contract with McDonald's to help stabilize their chicken costs. And for anyone that doesn't know, so soybean and corn are the feed that chickens eat that get turned into 
those McNuggets that you eat. And if soybean and corn prices go up a lot, their costs go up and, you know, their profit margins on uh, McNuggets go down because you can't just double your price on the McNuggets like that. My take, is this kind of a played up thing? Like, it's is it that novel of an idea to say I need to hedge my input costs? Isn't that not crazy to me or, or am I wrong? Well, it's very mainstream now. Sure. And I think okay, you yeah. especially see it with the currency hedges, like most businesses do it today. The At the time, it, it may have been novel. I'm not really sure, but I, I know he garnered a lot of attention for this and it sounds like it helped McDonald's. So certainly it, it must have been valuable to them, but it does surprise me that they wouldn't have thought, and maybe it was just that the futures contracts weren't as popular as they maybe are today, but it's weird that they wouldn't have thought like, okay, this is a major cost for us. We should probably find a way to stop it from fluctuating so much. But I guess Dalio did that for him. Yeah. And it's one of those stories that gets repeated ad nauseum. You'll still see people doing threads on Twitter about it today. You know, the first one is want to learn how a Wall Street legend helped McDonald's lower its chicken prices through blah, 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 you know and like stuff like that. So there's two other things though. He went on, you know, he had various media appearances. He loved talking in magazines, stuff that people on Wall Street read. And then he also, and this is a very great idea. He started one of the first markets commentary newsletters, but this is before email. So it had to be sent by fax. So it wasn't easy to just sign up for a Substack or something like that. And he built up a great reputation and he started charging upwards of $3,000 per month for his quote unquote research package, which is close to $10,000 a month today. And as a tale as old as time, with these newsletters, Dalio is consistently bearish. I mean, very, very bearish. In 1982, this is what he said. This is a quote from the book. Since 1800, Dalio said, the United States had experienced 14 major depressions, all following the same historic patterns. The 15th was plainly imminent. And as maybe not all of you know, but I think a lot of people will understand that 1982 was one of the best times to be buying stocks ever. It was one of the best times to be optimistic. So he was kind of, did this fascinate you that you that he was just a perma bear newsletter guy to, to begin with, to get kind of some of the money rolling in? Yeah, I was blown away how much money he was generating from the newsletter. I, I didn't realize that was kind of the core business in the early days. I, I don't think it's any secret. Bearishness sells. It's the same today. Um, as you know, obviously, there's more to his newsletter than just purely saying the stock market's going to go down. I think some people have become broken records with it. And I'm sure he was providing more value to readers than that. But he was a good commodities analyst. Like that. And and frankly, he was a good market analyst in general, and he was very well spoken. So it doesn't surprise me that he ended up becoming or writing a very successful newsletter. Yeah. And as you'll kind of see there, he's a market historian. That's a big thing with his process. And we're talking about his process because maybe a little spoiler, uh, a lot of what Bridgewater does comes back to what he thinks, even though, as we'll talk about, they claim they do the complete opposite. So let's get back to the story. Even though in the 1980s, we're in a big bull market, you know, this consistent gloom and doom, 
from Dalio became extremely helpful for him when the Black Monday crash of 1987 occurred. And I think stocks, what was it? It went down, was it 17% or was it 22% in one day? Something like that. Say around 20%. Maybe Ryan can do some investigation for us here. After that, because if you call, you know, a market crash every year and then when one occurs, you can claim you're right. He hired a marketer uh, as one of his first time employees and in the announcement said that his firm had $700 million in AUM. Apparently, this is greatly uh, exaggerated. Here's a quote. Uh, Strite, the marketer, knew that eye-popping sum wasn't even close to correct. He assumed that Dalio had counted the assets of everyone who received a copy of Bridgewater's newsletter, even though most had no money with the firm. Strite learned quickly that his new boss, to his new boss, appearances matter. Now, on the one hand, you can say, this was misleading. He is a misleading guy, but it is, it worked. It's right. Like we can say that, well, we have blah, 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 AUM because we know a lot of strangely people with not an insane amount of AUM, but people from bigger funds, listen to our show, subscribe to our newsletter. We could claim the same thing, right? Yeah. I'm curious how he worded this because they are clients if you want to call them that if they subscribe to the newsletter so their client assets were probably quite high but uh were they managing those assets absolutely not and just uh i went and checked 23 percent, 22.6 percent is how far it fell on black monday in 1987. yeah worst day in market history so dalio's reputation improved but it really started improving in the 1990s with I think inarguably his best idea, which in not inspired, but uh, was a catalyst for Bridgewater's longest heyday, which was just generally throughout the entire 1990s. The other one I would say is right after the great financial crisis, more short lived, but basically 2008, 2009, 2010. And it was in 1991 when they launched what is called the Pure Alpha Fund. Got to say, fantastic name. First off, Bridgewater is a great name. means nothing. But Pure Alpha is, it's a good name, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and same with what they later later on launched, the all-weather. I mean, it's very, yeah, it, it sells itself. Yeah, they're good at that. They, look, we can talk about how much they've underperformed, and we will do that later. But look, their marketing is quite good. And the point of the fund is that it was supposed to generate strong, absolute returns year after year, regardless of what the market does. So it's called pure alpha. Now, some years it might not beat the market, but it's supposed to generate consistent returns year after year. And in its first few years, it crushed the market, never had a down year. And by 1999, it had $3 billion in AUM just in the pure alpha investment vehicle and had doubled its AUM every year since inception. So what was so special here about what Pure Alpha was and what Bridgewater was implementing and pitching to its clients? They said it was a rules-based, systematic approach to money management with major diversification across what they pitched as, quote, uncorrelated assets. This meant using market history and quantitative measures as a guide. So this could be currency exposures across the world. This could be commodities. This could be bonds. This could be... Some sort of real estate thing, although I don't really remember doing them doing much with that. It could be stocks. It could be long, short, whatever. 
but it's supposed to be all quantitative. Now, let me try to play a little hypothetical here, Ryan. If you are a, which you're not, but like a, how do I say, an allocator, someone who has a lot of money at these pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, whatever, what do you think when they have that little pitch there? Well, it sounds compelling. It sounds convincing. And there was a lot of I don't, confirmation bias is the wrong word, but you, you felt a sense of security knowing that a lot of other people had invested. And when he would say, we have $700 million in assets in the early days, it's like, oh, okay, I'm not the only one. Uh, if he would talk about uh, later on, especially as they started to gather more and more assets and they were quite secretive about how they were to like deploying those assets. But all you knew was this hedge fund has done well and they have a quantitative automated machine. I think it's very believable. And, and like, like I said, Dalio is, he was an exceptional, maybe the best ever on wall street salesman. Yeah. He, I mean, that he gathered more assets than any, any other hedge fund before. So, uh, yeah, I could very easily see why a lot of uh, allocators ended up giving him money. And the performance of the 90s, quite strong, and even through the dot-com bust. So what's funny, though, is that during the 90s, there was a major U.S. bull market. Now, there were some hiccups here and there, which is why the Pure Alpha Fund was so appealing to people because it seemed to do well year after year after year. But during that time, when Dahlia would talk to the media, he would basically every year call for an upcoming economic collapse. I think he's called for an economic collapse, not exaggerating, every single year since 1982. One of his colleagues even introduced him in a meeting, and this was in the book, once as, quote, someone who has called 15 out of the last zero depressions. Uh, apparently, Dahlia wasn't very amused. I think they probably took a vote uh, after that time to see whether... They believe that, and I'm sure everyone agreed with Dalio. Uh, if you're confused on that, we'll talk about that later with Ryan's section. So, you know, credit to them, though. They built a solid product in the 90s around the pure alpha strategy, and life was good. Fees started rolling in. We move into the 2000s. Dot-com bubble bust hits. Pure alpha lost just 1% in 2000 and then gained 9% in 2001. And when people saw that, I think that was okay. They were thinking, wow, this can do well throughout the market cycle. This is incredible. It's an incredible product. And AUM went into overdrive. This is a quote from the book. The firm grew from $33 billion in AUM in 2001 to $167 billion in 2005. So they were an asset gathering machine. But like always, Dahlia was starting to get bearish. And in 2005, he was bearish again. He was actually right, though, this time, foreseeing the great financial crisis and a commodity price boom. It took a few years, but he was right, rang the bell at the top on the mortgage loan troubles. However, he was very inconsistent in what he said uh, to the media, but it's fine because the fund did quite well in 2008. The fund was up 9%, while the average hedge fund lost 18%. Now, here's, I think that's kind of a conclusion of where we get, because I think there's two eras of Bridgewater, and there might be more. Uh, you know, the story's not over. But there's basically Bridgewater up until 2010, and then Bridgewater from 2010 to today, and it's been two entirely different stories. And the book hits really a lot after 2010. 
But what were your thoughts on the early to middle days of Bridgewater? Anything to surprise you? Anything? Well, I'm going to save this one about luck till later because we don't have the full context yet. But anything surprised you? What were your thoughts on the 90s, early 2000s success for them? Uh, surprised me. I mean, they had to gather assets somehow. And it's really typically, I'd say it's pretty hard to gather assets with, with, without at least a little bit of performance to sell. So I want to say I was surprised that there was the great performance. That's kind of how you become the biggest fund in the world. It it seems like that was them hitting their stride. The kind of 1990s was them at their best, but it was what's kind of brewing under the hood that, and it's really not even like the, if you just look at Bridgewater on the investment side, it's fine. That's, I mean, it's had a really good period for a long time. It's until done a really good job. Yeah. Until 2010. Yeah. But it's the business side that, that kind of has drawn our attention and really what the book is about, because we're going to talk about this. Dalio had ambitions a lot further beyond investing. He wanted this to be a lot more than a capital allocation company. He, he wanted yeah. it to be something better. Yeah, he got a bit of a messiah complex, and that's a great teaser. I'm gonna li- Ryan's gonna lead this next part. We're gonna hit part two next. What is truly going on at Bridgewater? Um, according to this author of the book, which I should find who the author is, and the question I think a lot of people are asking or do ask is this business investment fund a fraud? So the author is Rob Copeland. He does a really good job with this book. So what's going on at Bridgewater? I said not really a whole lot of investing uh, because out of the roughly 2,000 employees at Bridgewater's peak, it's estimated that only 20% were actually involved in the investing or research side of things. And the rest of the business was basically about building the perfect business, building this automated machine and delighting Dalio, essentially. Making Dalio feel good is kind of what it felt like. And I'll talk about that more in a little bit. But it's it's actually kind of, it's this common trend throughout the book. People would apply to Bridgewater. It was really sought after, hard to get a job there. They'd get the job. And then they'd realize that they had no idea what was going on with the investment portfolio. They would be investing analysts and have no, like, no input, no research about investing whatsoever. Um, for the vast majority, they just had no involvement on that side of things. And they actually had no information about it either. It was well protected within Bridgewater. So if you spun out and started your own fund, which was very frowned upon, and I think typically they would sue you if you did it, they'd say you had access to Bridgewater's resources. And there was periods where it's people, they were young, they spun out, they started their own. And they'd say, well, you had access to our resources. And they're like, we, we had no idea what was going on. We had no idea what was being invested in. We had absolutely zero visibility into it. What analysts were doing, however, is they were going through principles training. So this was what most of the book was really about. Dalio had created a list of what he called principles, and he wanted to make this basically Bridgewater's version of the Bible. Um, basically the governing document 
that everyone at the firm would live by. It's very interesting how we're not going to talk about this forever, but how similar it is to like religious stuff where he was like, oh, I, the great leader just, this came to my head and I need to write this down and you all need to follow this because this is the way we go forward and have a great society. That's not an exaggeration of what he's basically trying to convey with all his thoughts. Yeah. And if anything went wrong, if there was ever any dispute, they would look to the principles to see how to deal with it. Like, like it was a governing document. He had every employee equipped with an iPad that had a digital version of the book. I believe they called this the book of the future. Uh, analysts took exams on the principles. It was m- very much meant to be this governing document that everyone had to live by. When would In- you quit? When, when would you quit? When they gave out exams on the principles? Probably with the rating system, which I'm going to talk about here in a second. I think okay. the dotting, dotting would be what got me. They did pay well. That is something they paid well. So I think I could see why a lot of post-Ivy League employees ended up taking these jobs. It's credible. It's, it seems top level. So uh, it, it garnered a lot of applicants. But what principles really did and the rating system, which we're going to talk about, was foster a culture of backstabbing and confirmation bias for those at the top. So before we dig any further into the culture, you asked if Bridgewater was a fraud. I'm going to get this right out of the way. Bridgewater was not a fraud. It was weird as hell. It's a cult, I think, maybe even sort of a religion. People have called it that. Ex-employees have called it that but it wasn't a fraud. In fact, many people tried to investigate it. Bill Ackman publicly questioned it. Jim Grant from Grant's Interest Rate Observer went on the record saying, we will go out on a limb. Bridgewater is not for the ages. Even Harry Markopoulos, who uncovered the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme, tried to investigate it. The SEC investigated it themselves. And here's what they found. It says, the world's biggest hedge fund used a complicated sequence of financial machinations, including stock options and other relatively hard to track trading instruments to make otherwise straightforward seeming investments. In truth, it was not an investment machine. Greg Jensen, who was CEO for quite a long time and probably the second most, imperson- second most important person at the company, at one uh, point- Before you go on to this, we're- how hard was it for you to follow all the people that cycled through that Dalio just kind of used as his whipping boy? All the executive company. Yeah. It's, I don't remember any. All I remember is Dalio treating everyone terribly. They were all given the promise that they could be CEO. And even Jim Cohn made them pay for that? it. He <laughs> made them the pay FBI for it. Yeah. yeah. The FBI guy was working there. And he's like, what is going on here? I think that was hilarious too. But sorry, continue. Yeah. So Greg Jensen's pretty much the second most most important person at the company at one point said, I can run this firm on a single spreadsheet. Uh, It goes on to say on page 240 of the book, this, uh, this kind of the last bit I'll talk about, about the investing strategy. It says there was essentially no grand system, no no artificial intelligence of any substance, no holy grail. There was just Dalio in person, over the phone from his yacht or for a few weeks, many summers from his villa in Spain, calling the shots. He had really valuable relationships with a lot of world leaders, people that were heads of states um, that made him privy to information that he could trade on. So, yeah. 
and this is the connection comes to where are they getting their AUM? I think we should mention this is a lot of these countries is where they're giving him the money. So it's almost a colluding, right? Investment because you have a lot of Chinese funds that are connected to the CCP. You even have Russian stuff. I mean, I think at one point he was trying for years to get a meeting with Vladimir Putin. There's a lot of Middle East countries that may not have the best human rights records. He is not afraid to get assets from anywhere, no matter how many people at the company who like they were like, do do we really need to go into Russia and take this guy's money? But yeah, and and then then those people would tell him what they're going to do. Yeah, and I don't know if you could really deem this inside of trading. I don't want to say it is because Who knows? they went out, they went after a lot of people uh, that that said bad things about him. So I don't want to be one of those people. Uh, and that's not what the podcast is about. But they had an quote unquote informational advantage, and that's a lot of what their trading was. It was uh, commodities prices that could fluctuate if there was a certain storm in a region or oil prices, if they knew Kazakhstan was going to flood the market with more oil, they were producing a lot, that kind of thing, because they had the relationships with the top brass there. So it was it was big macro bets like that, that made up most of the fund, and they would do it through options and more complicated strategies, even though it was pretty, the, the directionally, it was typically straightforward bets. And as another note, he despises is it the current? Yeah, at the time was the Federal Reserve Chair, but now is the U.S. Secretary of uh, the Treasury, Janet Yellen, because she wouldn't rat on what they were doing. So he, simply for that reason, has a, like, it seemed from the book a deep hatred for her. Yeah. So that's how he rolls. That's, how, that's, that's part of the way they got good returns. Anyway, so that's what Bridgewater was doing. They had good information. And they were making macro bets based on that information. Then there was what Ray Dalio wanted people to think Bridgewater was doing. He wanted people, like Brett said, to believe Bridgewater was this highly automated idea meritocracy that produced wonderful investing results. And to do this, he built internal systems that employees lived by. The most important was the dotting or the rating system. This was employees judging other employees giving them ratings, marking them down, down dotting them, up dotting them if they liked them, or if one of them gave them a bad look, you know, giving them a bad believability rating. Or, or There's basically all these criteria that ultimately culminate, culminated in a believability score, which was kind of this one through 10 metric. Originally, it was meant to be your baseball card, your baseball card at the firm, and your stats were like ability to synthesize complicated information. And it was except it wasn't, it was determined by your colleagues. So people that wanted the same promotion as you, people that, you know, it was, you can see how that would foster a culture of backstabbing. So there were, I'm trying to go through some of the other stuff here. There was publicly an issue log. So if you had an issue with anyone, you could just jot it down. Uh, One of the top executives made a very public issue about the coffee pot not being filled up enough. I think Dalio saw a scuff one time on the ground and they determined that it was from someone's high heel. And so they said no more high heels at the office. Um, There was 
he, he was very focused on radical transparency. And in order to be as radically transparent as possible, they had video and audio recording devices literally everywhere, it seemed. So if you were at Bridgewater, you were basically being recorded. And it was also publicly accessible via the transparency library. And the transparency library was this, everyone at the company could access it. I think it was basically just a folder or a cloud document uh, or and a, a place where you access a bunch of videos and audio of everything. And I'm sure most of the conversations were incredibly boring. But if there was any dispute, anything that happened, you could go back and you could play the tape because uh, you were probably being recorded. So, uh, and this was actually really kind of a common sequence of events that happened in the book over and over and over. Someone would do something wrong, whether it was they didn't get a task done in time, they would talk bad about a colleague, maybe talk talk back to Ray. If you did that, you were screwed. Question the principles. If you question the principles, uh, you're bound to be kicked out of the cult. You name it. Once Dahlia was made aware of this, and it was heavily incentivized to tattle, if if you told on them, it was well incentivized because you were being transparent, uh, he would have a trial. And often this was a public trial, so it would be a bunch of people in a room, often executives. He would, and it was recorded and uploaded to the transparency library so that everyone can hear him attacking the person. He would play the tape. He would probe was his term. He would probe the person, which meant basically verbally attacking him. And then if they cried, he would attack them for having an emotional reaction because it's not good to have an emotional reaction in the workplace, in his opinion. And then typically this culminated in either a firing or a downgrading in their role, a number of different things. Basically, the questioner in these cases was the executioner. They also would have, they would bring in the ethics committee, which was a, just a team of three old executives. Um, and he would have them vote on whether or not what they did was ethical. And it was, it was just this constant repeat process where he kind of seemed like a like an uh, like a Roman ruler or something where he would hold court and then determine the person's punishment. Well, yeah, I think it's unsurprising that the guy likes China. I mean, what this feels like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's unsurprising. I think he likes Russia. This seems like something out of Vladimir Putin. Yeah. The Here's one example where this actually didn't end so well for Bridgewater. So Greg Jensen, second most important person at the company, was spending a lot of time with a subordinate lower employee named Samantha Holland. They apparently were getting affectionate for one another. They went out to drinks with colleagues. The colleagues saw them go home together after and they, and you know, because this is what you're supposed to do at Bridgewater, they told, they reported them for being affectionate together. Um, Jensen said they did not get physical and Ray needed to know. He, he said, <laughs> Jensen, I need to know, did you guys get physical? He said, no, they were just friends. Holland said that they kind of had. Um, and so Dalio just could not put up with the not knowing, I guess. And he had the ethics committee, which we just talked about was a team of three men, hold a trial. Basically, they disagreed on their versions of events, even though Holland had hotel receipts of them going in together. And people all had all said, like bystanders all said they were being affectionate. 
But Dalio couldn't say whether she was lying or not because Jensen had such a high believability score. So Dalio declared it a mistrial, then asked Holland to voluntarily leave and accept several months of severance instead. Holland, unsurprisingly, got a lawyer. Holland's lawyer spoke to Dalio on the phone, and here's what the book says. Not only had Dalio ignored all standards of procedure for investigating such workplace conduct by investigating it himself outside of human resources, he was told, but he potentially he was told that he'd potentially impugned Holland's reputation. The ethics committee might have a catchy name, but it was a legal nightmare. In no universe, Holland's attorney said, was it appropriate for three older men untrained in such matters to question a woman about her relationship with the CEO? Bridgewater settled, gave her three years of her salary to leave. Uh, So it was countless kind of cases like that where he was the ultimate determiner of people's outcome, punishment, whatever he wanted. Sometimes it seemed like it was mostly just for his own entertainment, Uh, especially with some of these, like he would call in newcomers, wait for them to have an emotional reaction, and then he'd edit edit the video where it takes out him calling them rude names or whatever. He'd edit that part out and he'd upload it to the transparency library. It's, so it's like, uh, it's like 1984. It's, it's, I swear it's, it's, he is, he was running the George Orwell operation over here. Yeah. And if you're thinking, well, who's doing the investing? Yeah, you're right. There's 2000 people here. 1500 of them are focused on this stuff. Nothing yeah, else. <laughs> it's mind blowing. I was trying to think like, what do people do with their day-to-day tasks? And like most of the book, I'm thinking like, what work are they on? Are they just reading principles all day and getting paid absurd amounts to do it? I I want to talk about the dotting system for a little bit. And it's honestly a little difficult to do justice to how stupid this dotting slash rating system seems. So there are countless examples of how this creates just the absolute worst incentives. But I want to read this email from someone at the company. His name was Kent Curran. He was a junior analyst that had been there for 19 months and was getting sick of the culture. Here's how his email reads. It says the subject was an exit interview for Kent Curran. Reasons for leaving, career change slash performance. Comments. The immediate reason for leaving is losing my MA box due to Ray and David's data points on me. I think the MA box was kind of like your rating score. I can't remember exactly the the term they used for it, but I believe it was equivalent to the rating score. So Ray and David, who I assume was another superior, gave him bad points on something and all of a sudden his rating just downgraded because Ray, if Ray downgraded you, it had way heavier weight uh, to to your score, and then people would follow along with whatever Ray did to make him happy. So uh, it, it ultimately downgraded his score in a big way. So he says, somewhere between watching the fourth and fifth manager in my neighborhood be deemed inadequately conceptual, unable to synthesize, etc., while performing what would be considered modest responsibilities at another firm, the principals lost some of their magic for me. Knowing that any hour the hour of the day, Ray might respond unpredictably to a daily update or that any casual comment in a meeting might lead to a seminar about how one's thinking is poor, generates tension and fear. It probably doesn't help that 50 plus percent of management training, I put in air quotes, consists of watching the sorting. And he says, could you find a more Orwellian word of once one once respected colleague or another? Sorting was just firing, essentially. 
we would sort people, <laughs> sort them out of the firm. Um, he says, there's an unhealthy drive to the negative that's often debilitating. Just a few weeks ago, I could literally couldn't think of any significant strength other than char- the charitable hardworking. People seemed to be on the prowl to discover my weaknesses, but strengths were underappreciated. Bridgewater sold me as an empowering place where relatively young people can challenge status quo and make a big impact. Fast forward, and it was drilled into me that it's bad to have opinions on the to the point where, and I, I'm not sure if I should include this or not, but I'll say it anyways. It says, to the point where it felt like I was a Catholic schoolboy looking at pornography whenever a non-conventional thought came into my head. So basically he's saying he just felt so alienated if he had any thought that went against, went against principles. And then he says, to close it out, on the perks and social end, the place be expectations. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, you got well, paid they- well. Yeah, well, what's the AUM, regardless of those performance fees, which are quite fat as well? You're bringing in $2 billion a year on the 2 and 20, and then if you have a 10% up year, what's that's another $2 billion, right? On $100 billion, 10 with the 20% there. So, I mean, yeah. And what's even more interesting is how nonsensical these principles are, which we'll get to at the end. They don't mean anything. No, I mean, there's this point where I want to find the quote. Okay. It's going to be in my closing thoughts in part three, but I mean, when you have so many quotes, it's bound to be contradictory. Like you have 375 principles. I feel like you could find just about any principle to back up the action that you did. Like there's something to support your belief because they're going to be contradictory when you have that many. I agree. I agree. It's Look, as always, Munger's right. Show me the incentive. I'll show you the outcome. He set up some terrible incentives for workplace workplace culture. I think that's probably my thoughts here. And it inspired the famous, what's it called? Black Mirror episode that has essentially the dotting system throughout the entire world. Yeah, so people that thought. One? Yeah. They, people... thought, they might have bet, yeah. Yeah, people at Bridgewater thought they were talking to someone at the company for inspiration for the show. Netflix had a source. Yeah. They were concerned about it, which uh, (laughs) I think it shows you. Yeah, watch that show again. Uh, I don't know if you've watched that one, but maybe you should after reading now and you're uh, reading the book if you haven't, Ryan. And you're going to say, like, wow, they basically copied Dahlia's dotting system. Yeah, it sounds like it. Any other thoughts here on. Your your thoughts about the business and what it was versus what it was sold as. It's I, there's a lot of people out there that have been skeptical, and I thought potentially it could have been, you know, made off like scheme, but it seems like it's not. It's a little bit of a different scam, I would say, where they're not actually scamming people out of money they are being incredibly misleading about actually what is actually going on at the firm because it's really the exact opposite of what they're claiming. And there's nothing illegal about that. It's just misleading a lot of people with a lot of money. Yeah, I think people sign on for, I bet some of the bigger clients like being associated with Bridgewater, maybe less so after this book has become so public. They like Probably a lot of the events Bridgewater puts on. I don't know. There's probably a lot of allure beyond just the recent poor performance. Yeah. And speaking of that, 
since 2011, I mentioned there is basically two breaks. You know, until 2010, they had pretty good returns. But since 2011, returns have been terrible. AUM is significantly down from its peak. All of the fees have been nice and fat. AUM still at about $100 billion. So again, you're bringing in, even if you have a down year, $2 billion a year in management fees. Um, and you can see now why Dalio is one of the most wealthy people in the world. If we look at, I have a chart that I'm going to put in the newsletter. And it compares from 2011, a 70% global stock index, 30% global bond index versus Bridgewater Pure Alpha. Bridgewater Pure Alpha, I believe, had a CAGR of around 1% since 2011. While basically any all stock, 60-40, 70-30, as is in this example, portfolio has done at least, even through the end of 2022, where stocks had a te- and bonds had a terrible year. Or wait, did bonds have a terrible year in 2022? Yeah, they did. Um, it was like a seven, eight percent CAGR, and that's basically these passive vehicles that have no fees. So they have just like they provided no pure alpha since 2011. And what I have my answer to why, but the and it's my hunch, it's my speculation as to why they've done bad. But I want to know what you think why they've done bad since 2011. Well, I think for starters. It's they have a ton of capital. I mean, it's difficult to. I would imagine it's difficult to beat the market when you have a hundred forty billion dollars you're investing. Like it's it's hard to get into companies. It's hard to get out of companies. You're gonna you're gonna make big moves unless you're a big activist investment firm like Elliot. But they're smaller. Eh, not too small, I guess. Yeah. I think Elliot's around 100 as well. Yeah, but they're different. They're private equity too. They're not. Yeah. They're all, yeah. I don't know. I, I would just imagine that it gets harder. Maybe that's not the only reason for underperformance. I would imagine that just being pretty bearish, the US economy for the last decade has hurt them. But now, I don't know. Yeah. We don't know what's in their portfolio, really. Yeah. True, true. And that's what confused people because they weren't showing up on a lot of stuff. So I think it was a lot of these, like you said, these option things that they would do. Um, but I, I have a hunch. One is obviously the workplace culture that deteriorated to just a point of misery for a lot of people. But my other hunch is that they were, you know, you, they had a decent strategy since 1990. They tried to be as market neutral as possible and essentially rode three decades of since 1982-ish, of a bull market in U.S. Treasuries. I have a chart here that'll be in the newsletter. It's a pretty famous chart that shows when interest rates peaked and they just essentially went down and down and down and down and down until the end of the great financial crisis. And yeah, in COVID, they went a little bit lower, but from 2010 to 2019, you know, we were at zero. The ZERP interest rate policy essentially for a lot of that time, and then the Fed started raising rates. And I think Bridgewater's edge kind of ended here. Here's a quote from the book. Quote, another moneymaker for Bridgewater was Bob Prince. Dalio had delegated the lion's share of research on bonds or fixed income to his longtime colleague. Prince made bonds, particularly U.S. treasuries, considered the safest of all a mainstay of Bridgewater clients' accounts. The move proved prescient and profitable. Treasuries went on a long streak of strong performance, up double digits some years, including in 2000, when the stock market dragged badly and busted currency best weighed on the rest of Bridgewater's portfolio. 
I have a hunch that they were riding U.S. Treasuries for a long time, and it's not a coincidence that their performance ended. Their their strong performance ended when Treasuries stopped having their you know interest rates go down. Yeah, or their yield. Yeah, it can certainly be part of it. The uh, yeah, uh, it's hard to tell without knowing what's in that portfolio. So just a hunch, yeah, for me, yeah, uh, it's not that's not a fact. Yep. Let's go through part three here. Kind of conclude with our thoughts on Bridgewater, the principles, and maybe any of our favorite parts from the book. You want to go first? Yeah, and maybe we can do lessons to close things out for investors. Maybe lessons that we're trying to learn after reading this. So. For me, I think the book is great. Not an incredibly hard read, but not super light either. Um, I'd recommend it to anyone that's interested in... If you listen to the show, you will probably like this book. And it was a big... Kind of, you know... I love using this one. They are who we thought they were. The football coach that says that you know, moment for me. Plenty of smart people I follow in the financial world that are much smarter than me, probably just follow them on Twitter. They always claim that Bridgewater was sort of a scam, kind of a pure marketing BS stuff. And now I understand that they were right. They probably had heard from people they knew that what was actually going on there. And now this book kind of uh, shows that it was just a bunch of nonsense. And the principles are frankly incredibly stupid. Uh, Stalio, if you're listening to this, you can wipe your billions, you know, you can take your billions and wipe your tears off, but I don't think that'll insult them too much. They are very, very dumb. Uh, but he is incredibly smart in certain ways, like building his brand among people that are not curious enough to investigate further about what they're actually doing or what he's actually saying or read this book. You know, for example, this was me five years ago. I watched what they talked about in the book, which is kind of weird to experience again. They talked about how he has now a couple of famous YouTube videos about the quote economic machine and what he calls principles for a changing world order. Again, so good at writing titles for things and putting names on stuff. At the time, I thought these videos were extremely smart. I was like, oh, hedge fund manager explaining the economy. You know, it's something that's kind of confusing to me. I don't understand how the economy works. This guy's smart. He gets it. He's very convincing. He always has these constant media appearances. And it made him seem to me, as someone just getting into this, that probably looked up, how does the economy work? How does finance work? How does investing work? I thought he was one of the investing geniuses there on par with Buffett. And plenty of others have too. I think I have a screenshot, actually. It kind of shrunk on me a bit here. But there's these videos that probably have, in total, over 100 million views. And that was one of the ways that he went viral recently in the last 10 years, even though his performance has been so bad, his reputation might be even better than it was in the past. Because in the past, there was no one like me, a 20-year-old, trying to get into investing that can learn about him. But my favorite parts of the book are when he tries to focus everything on building this perfect business system as Ryan went through in detail uh, in that second part there. It is so confusing, but it shows how, shows how far they've gone from actually making investments. I think it is a great lesson on how not to run a durable business. He essentially took what Buffett does at Berkshire Hathaway and said, I'm going to do everything the complete opposite. And one's, I think, more durable of a business. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Buffett tried to do... I don't think there's really that many businesses like Berkshire. It's so unique that he manages, for the most part, 
like absurd amounts of capital all on his own. And he, he takes the role of probably what thousands of people do at other firms, like entirely on his own anyway. But uh, well, team of maybe four or five because he has the trader and he has Todd and Ted now. But yes, they've got more people now. Yeah. Uh, but on Bridgewater, yeah, so working there sounds like it would be awful. Like, I get, get, they get paid a lot, so that's you know that's definitely a perk. Uh, good but parties, like, good parties. Apparently Except really when Dalio party. gets drunk and weird, that would yeah. you know slide out of there before that. Yeah. It, it, Sounds really dystopian. There was a lot of stuff that reminded me of the George Orwell 1984. It's like, like imagine you're actually a junior analyst there. You get a called into a meeting and there's a point when like you're supposed to say something and you muster up the courage to, to say something and everyone just doesn't respond. And all they do is just pull out their iPods, their iPads, and you just see your score going down. You're like, okay, what the hell is going on? It's, it's so horrible. Uh, that just sounds awful. Anyway, Dalio for me, like I said, great salesman, maybe one of the best ever, but someone who's been right a lot so much so that now he has built the incentives and built the system around him that anything he says, he thinks is truth because everyone validates everyone just you know, oh, yep, that makes sense because I want my score to go up and I got to approve it. And you have the highest believability score. So you're really smart. There's no one to check him. And I think that's certainly a, certainly a big risk. Um, I think the best examples of this are when, and we haven't talked about this that much, but when Dalio gets into an argument with subordinate subordinates and then and this happened on a number of occasions. He got in some dispute with someone because the guy was like, you know, the the principles they're 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 hard to follow. They're distracting. It's difficult. I've had a lot they're of they're contradictory. Some yeah. of them are saying the opposite of another one. Yeah, and he Dalio will go to a room full of people that just want to please him. Do you think this guy's right or me? They're like, raise your hand if you think he's right. And it's like, you know, it's a death sentence if you raise your hand. And then he's like, see, no one agrees with you. And it's like, he will never get, he will get whatever people, whatever he wants people to say. That's what they're going to tell him. It's, it's a bunch of yes men, unsurprisingly. That's kind of what the culture has fostered. There, I think I'll just leave with this. Um, so the company, Bridgewater, at one point, Greg Jensen, talked bad about Dalio behind his back. They demoted him from CEO to some lower role. And Dalio made him go and recruit the next CEO, which is kind of like hilarious punishment, right? I think they they gave the analogy that your ex is going and getting you your next girlfriend or whatever. It's basically what was happening. And so they brought in John Rubenstein or Rubenstein, I'm not sure. Um, to be CEO. Rubenstein had been a former executive at Apple. I believe he was head of the iPod Touch. And they really went out, tried to recruit him. I think they paid him something like $25 million a year, something crazy to come to Bridgewater and improve the quote unquote technology. Like that was his job as CEO to improve the technology. It had nothing to do with investing. He said no amount of expertise could solve it. And the book says 
At Apple, Steve Jobs had taught Rubenstein, Rubenstein to keep a laser focus on the end customer. The North Star of the company was to create helpful products that delighted customers. To Rubenstein, Dalio seemed focused on delighted himself. That's my big question. My big, like, cons- leaving this book, I thought, who on earth are the principals for? Like, who are all these employees at the company working for? It seems like it's an entire 1500 person outside the investing 1500 person organization built to make Dalio kind of feel more important. Yeah. And he's now one of the richest people in the world. So that's, you know, I think anyone listening to this is a little bit of a different show. If you really didn't like this style of episode, please let us know. We think people will be interested in this. I, you know, it's a conversation that we would enjoy having just by ourselves. We thought people would help, you know, like it, but if you don't like it, let us know. But I will say, it's, I think, important because he is now one of the most influential people in the world. And one here's what I'll close on before we get to our favorite principles as kind of a fun ending here. Is I was, for the longest time, so confused on why he was just always optimistic about China. And because it, it, it seemed like it was part of his economic machine thing where they looked like a debt bomb. And they've turned out to kind of be a debt bomb so far over the last couple of years. But he has been bullish again and again and again. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, they just gave him a lot of money. And then one time he said something slightly, I think, bearish about or negative about China. I don't know if it was about a financial thing or just in general. And they almost pulled the plug. So he had to like, it's funny, it's kind of an Orwellian, uh, uh, he had to go on rushing. 10 years of like talking about how great China was after that. Exactly. So like him again. Exactly. It's like a nesting doll of Orwellian stuff. They got to, you know, control him. And then he implements the same one party thought to his company. I mean, it's, it's honestly like, yeah, yeah, I think that's where I'd like to close things out. But should we talk uh, favorite principles? Uh, Ryan, you have a one of the best ones, I'd say. Sure. Basically, I- one point they had to do a big reorganization or a big uh, sorting and fire a bunch of the people at the company. And in order to fire them, he wrote his new principle. He said, sometimes you need to be able to shoot the ones you love and we need to love the ones we shoot. Yeah. I mean, is that, you should do, I think principle, you should do like a quiz of principles and you should say Joseph Stalin or Ray Dalio. Honestly, (laughs) no one would get them right. The I'm not sure that was like I think that was a principle. They like they, they kind of quoted it in different parts from the book, but basically he was like to justify the firings, he implemented a new principle, which it was like he would just go about his day and then be like, Ooh, okay, that's a good principle. I was just yeah. thinking, like, when does he do any investing? Like, when is he reading about investing? I don't know. I don't know, but he's tweeting a lot. And he tweets a principal every day. I do love following him for that. And he's got a lot no, of followers. I doubt he runs that account. That's, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, he definitely writes this stuff though. It's definitely in his voice, but I don't know if he actually is tweeting it. If you get what I mean. Um, but who knows? Who knows? He has apparently 10 principles for 2023. I'm going to read them off here in order. See if you get any insights here. One, one plus one equals three. 
Two, pain plus reflection equals progress. Three, fail well. Four, shapers are people who can go from visualization to actualization. Five, appreciate the art of thoughtful disagreement. Six, meditate. That's it. Seven, own your outcomes. Eight, regularly use pain as your guide towards quality reflection. That one is, I got to say, do not follow that one. Um, okay. uh, nine, don't believe everything you hear. Ten, don't let fears of what others think of you stand in the way. He is kind of like if every mom and mother in the world and, you know, those things they tell their kids like, hey, don't listen to everything you hear, kid, kiddo. You know, you just compile all those and yeah. put a book in and run an investment fund like it. This is a good example of them being contradictory. It's like one plus one equals three. Don't believe everything you hear. Okay. All right. I ignore the first one. It's like you can back up any action with one of the principles because they're so contradictory. So it's, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I guess obviously changed my view of the, the organization. And I guess maybe Dalio is a really good analyst, really certainly a good commodities analyst in his prime uh but maybe it requires focused a different skill things. set to run a company yeah i was gonna say focused on other stuff at the moment so the question we started out with was is bridgewater associates a scam i don't know we'll leave it up to the listeners there i would say possibly we don't want to get into any legal trouble it's it's up to the listener i think you can hopefully take from the hour-long discussion we've had here and form your own opinion on Bridgewater Associates, the hedge fund industry, and what it takes to build a hedge fund business as well as some behind-the-scenes looks. If you like the book, give it a read. We're literally just giving whoever wrote this, uh, Mr. Copeland, their free advertisement because we think it's such a great book. Seriously, if you listen to the show you will enjoy this book but let's hit the disclosures we are not financial advisors anything we say on the show is not formal advice or recommendation ryan i or any podcast guest may hold securities discussed in this podcast we may have held them in the past and we may buy sell or hold them in the future next week we have a fun discussion that we haven't recorded yet but it's going to be coming out next week with uh longtime guests who have come on both multiple times before, Francisco Oliveira from Aravilo Capital Management and Alex Morris, who runs the Science of Hitting Research, to give an update on the media industry. They're two of, I would say, the foremost experts in the investing world on that. So very excited for that extended discussion. I think everyone's going to enjoy it. And as always... We are going to have the Investing Power Hour live every Thursday out on the podcast player of choice every Sunday. Thank you all for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.